Well, hello, everyone. It's good to see you all. It's good to, um, I think last time I've seen uh, almost all of you, you were just a, a little thumbnail size. So you're actually real people, and uh, good to actually be with you in person today. I've had the opportunity to go through First John with you, and we're going to continue that this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to First John 3. I do have a bit of a disclaimer this morning. Uh, sometimes when you uh, prepare a sermon, you think you're going to talk about one thing. It ends up being about another thing. Uh, I wrote a sermon earlier this week, and I thought, this is actually really three sermons. And so I decided, I don't want to give you guys three sermons, and I'm just going to pick one of these. And so I picked one of the topics, uh, and it happens to be hamartiology, which is the doctrine of sin. And you may be thinking to yourself, uh, that's pretty far afield from a topic called manifesting love. And you may think that's a little more dour than what you'd want uh, when we're all excited to actually see each other in person. Uh, But I think this topic is, it's important, it's interesting, and uh, Lord willing, it will be edifying for us this morning. So let's take a look at it. We're in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. We're going to 18. Uh, I'm going to be reading. You're welcome to listen or read along with me. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brothers is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We pray that by it you would shepherd us, each according to our need. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at Hamar theology this morning. A fun word to say, the doctrine of sin And uh, this topic reminds me of an article I read a couple weeks ago comparing Christian film directors with non-Christian film directors. 
And the author of the article was telling us that Christian film directors always seem to have a very clear moral theme in their movies. There's heroes, there's villains, uh, there's conflicts that revolve around justice and fairness. Even the viewers themselves are drawn in expressing moral sentiments. You're rooting for people, you're booing people. You want the bad guys to lose, the little guys to be rescued. You want the heroes to be uh, rewarded at the end of all of it. There's a clear moral theme. Non-Christian film directors, this article was saying, don't have a big moral theme in their movies. Their movies are introspective, they're psychological, and they're many times boring to the viewer. And what this uh, author was arguing was that a moral universe makes things interesting. Having a strong moral theme is what makes a story compelling. And for us as Christians, as we talk about the doctrine of sin, that matters in part because what we are doing is describing the moral universe. We are describing a moral landscape in a way that actually adds vibrancy, adds depth, and adds color to our lives. The reason the doctrine of sin is important to us is because it makes the stories we live in and the stories of others worth living. It makes them something that we can actually be curious about. And so I hope we experience a little bit of that this morning. We're going to have a few points that we'll examine as we think about the doctrine of sin. That is the nature of sin, what sin is, the effects of sin, its consequences in our lives, and then lastly, what is the solution to sin? And we'll go through it in that order. First things first, the nature of sin, what is it? And what this passage tells us is that sin is breaking God's law. Let me read to you what John says in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Uh, John is telling us that sin is a kind of doing thing. It's something that involves actions, it involves uh, behaviors, and he connects it to the work of the devil. And this is what he says in verse 10 about the works of the devil. He says this, but this, it, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. The word righteous is a very uh, kind of religious way of saying somebody who is a law keeper. And an unrighteous person is somebody who violates God's laws. And uh, it happens to be in, in very real concrete ways. We're not talking about abstractions. We're not talking about ethereal situations It's talking about the real ways that we actually keep God's law or break it on a daily basis. And we're used to laws and rules in our lives in all sorts of contexts, but it's helpful for us to remember the context that John is using when he's talking about laws. He has the metaphor of a kingdom in the back of his mind. Uh, Kingdoms have kings and God is king. Uh, Kingdoms have realms that they rule over. The earth is God's realm. Uh, kingdoms have citizens or subjects. The church is the citizens of God's kingdom. And by his law, he governs our lives. God's law is how he manages the subjects of his kingdom. And Jesus tells us that the sum of God's law is to love him and to love other people. And so the law is not some kind of uh, dross, uninteresting thing. It's actually a way that we invite love into our lives and into our world. 
Now, when I, when I was reading this passage, uh, if you were to read it very quickly and hastily, you might get the impression uh, that people who are Christians are only righteous people. They never sin. And people who are non-Christians uh, are defined by their sin. In fact, they're constantly marked by sin. And that would be a problem probably for every single one of us if that was true. Because there's, there's a fair amount of regular sin in our lives. And so what is, what is John talking about when he says things like, uh, people who are of God don't practice uh, unrighteousness? Well, when we're, when we're trying to solve problems in the Bible, one of the, the helpful tools is to start with uh, other parts of Scripture that are more clear, more established, more grounding for us, and then we use that to kind of work backwards and solve uh, uh, problems that are a little more ambiguous, a little more murky. And we actually don't have to look that far uh, in 1 John to find other clues, other uh, uh, teaching that's more clear to help us understand this problem. In fact, at the very beginning of the epistle, John tells his readers, the church of Ephesus, they need to be regularly confessing their sins. He seems to have it in mind that, that Christians, a normal Christian, he's not saying the bad Christians in the church, he's kind of just talking to all of them, he's talking to the really good Christians, the okay Christians, he's saying every single one of them uh, is going to be having sins in their life, they're going to have to be confessing with some degree of regularity, right? And if we dig into our passage a little more, uh, John uses some special words he, li- he uh, likes to use. He talks about people who are abiding in sin, people who are remaining in sin, And that is speaking specifically to somebody who is especially defined by sin. Uh, Sin is ubiquitous in their life. Uh, Sin is unchecked in somebody's life. And so when John is saying a Christian is defined by righteousness, not by sin, he's not saying really that there's zero sin in a person's life. He's saying that it can't be something that marks their life just unequivocally in some way. So John is telling us that Christians are defined by their righteousness and non-Christians are defined in some way by unrighteousness. I think that answers one question, but maybe uh, raises another question. And that is something that we've all asked ourselves before. Which is, why are there so many non-Christians who are just plain nicer than Christians? (laughs) Right? We've all wondered that. We've all probably maybe in a way we're a little self-conscious. We're like, that person's not a Christian. They don't go to church and they're so much nicer than me. Right? How do we explain this? And it's a genuine problem. Something we probably think about and wonder about with some regularity. I think the answer to it would involve a long talk and uh, a, a couple cups of coffee And uh, so we're not going to go into it with that much detail, but I will venture one thought with this, that I think uh, this question, um, uh, this passage kind of gives a a small but substantial answer. And that is, is that Christians are not supposed to be nice. Nice uh, simply means somebody who makes you feel comfortable. They never make you feel uncomfortable. Nice is uh, being a well-adjusted person. Nice has this sort of uh, middle-class suburban sensibility to it, right? Uh, but the actual moral code that we're called to is to imitate the God of the universe. In fact, the end of our passage says something like this, uh, sacrifice yourselves because God sacrifices himself for you. What the actual moral code that we are supposed to exemplify in our lives is nothing more or less than actually being godly, having a godlikeness to our lives. And the Old Testament calls it walking after God. The New Testament calls it imitating God. 
Uh, but when we talk about um, uh, uh, what does it mean for someone to be nice or less nice than somebody else, we got to rethink what we mean by niceness. And as we evaluate our lives and as we evaluate the world, uh, what we're looking for is people who are imitators of God, people who exemplify God's traits in some way. Our big idea here is that sin has something to do with how we actually treat God and treat other people in real situations. And what we've hinted at is that this is something that is worldly, it's, it's uh, made of the stuff that uh, our lives are made up of, and because of that, uh, there are real consequences to our sin. And that leads to our second point. What is the consequence or effects of sin in our lives? And there's two brief points I'll make on this. The first is that uh, sin uh, creates a kind of moral anarchy. Let me read to you how John puts it in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John is telling us that uh, sin creates a kind of moral anarchy in some way. And we might be tempted to kind of uh, gloss over uh, this. And and when we read lawlessness, we think he's talking about a law breaker. Sin is breaking God's law. We just said that, and that is true. But John's actually talking about something different. He's saying that sin creates a kind of moral disorder, a kind of moral chaos almost in some way. And uh, if we were to kind of imagine uh, uh, what this might look like, there's a few different layers and depths to that. And if we were to think of uh, sins that somebody can be committing uh, throughout, throughout the week, uh, particularly sins that are uh, antisocial, they have a big impact on a community, maybe they're more serious sins, it's not hard to see how this leads to a kind of moral anarchy. You can imagine a world where, uh, say, people didn't want to pay anything. They just took stuff. People just stole stuff whenever they wanted. You can imagine a world where promises were made without any attempt attempt at uh, keeping the promises. Imagine a marriage where the I do's don't matter anything. Imagine a contract that is not made in good faith. It's not difficult to see that this type of world would be a kind of lawlessness or moral anarchy. But lawlessness and and anarchy have deeper meanings about how we actually think about authority itself. At the heart of sin is not just bucking against particular laws, but it's bumping against God's authority itself. Sin is a kind of assertion of self-authority. It's when we become self-contained selves. Uh, It's when we try and generate our own existence. It's when we try and govern our own lives and set the terms for our lives uh, without reference to God or other people. This leads to another consequence of sin, though. When we live like this, uh, of course, uh, we're going to be impacting the people around this. Not only does sin lead to a kind of moral anarchy, but it actually hurts other image bearers. This is how John puts it. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Uh, John is trying to build these little connections here where he says that sin is a kind of hate. Hate leads to murder. And then he uses the example of Cain to illustrate all this. And if we're to go back in Genesis and think about the story of Cain, uh, Genesis actually has some uh, commentary on uh, Cain's murder of Abel. And it tells us the big problem with uh, Cain murdering Abel was that he defaced an image bearer. 
uh, that human beings are image bearers and that uh, his biggest problem was he actually broke something, defaced something that was immensely valuable. And so John is telling us in some way that sin has this kind of murderous effect that leads to defacing image bearers. And to appreciate why image bearing is maybe an appropriate way to talk about this, we need to think about the uh, story of creation. Uh, The first chapter of the Bible is a poem describing the goodness of God's world, and it's building and crescendoing until you get to the creation of humanity, which is the pinnacle of God's creation. Uh, They're the most glorified, the most exalted part of God's creation. They're people who are actually made in the very likeness of God himself. And there is a moral seriousness about people that entails certain rights and privileges that they have, a certain way that they deserve to be treated. What happens whenever we wrong people is we begin to tell a narrative in our heads or maybe to other people that actually undermines their intrinsic goodness, right? You can think of uh, the last year, I've heard a lot of political debates, and the way uh, many times people uh, critique their opponents is by placing them in a class or a group of people and then saying, those people are just flawed. They're intrinsically broken. There's something deeply uh, mistaken about that group of people. And then you justify all the slander, all the gossip, all the nastiness, all the cruel, cruel things that are said about other people. And so our undermining of people's uh, image-bearing uh, goodness uh, happens. It's a way of justifying our sin, and it's also an effect of our sin. I think the, the situation that, that is... Uh, painted in this passage about sin is kind of bleak. Uh, We're given a world where uh, people regularly break God's law, despite the fact that they were made to do the opposite. We're given a world uh, where there's a kind of uh, chaos and disorder that it seems to be trending towards, uh, that the the most uh, exalted and glorified part of God's world is also being destroyed and defaced. And it leaves us wondering, what is the solution to sin? And what John tells us is that Christ's appearance is the solution to sin. The appearance of Christ is how this is all going to be fixed. And let me read to you what he says in verse 5. You know that he, who is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. I want to poke at or unpack a, a few different aspects of this. John tells us that Jesus is here to take away our sin. That, of course, we know that means that Jesus forgives our sins, that he died on the cross for our sins. But what John is talking about here is something uh, a little different. He is saying that Jesus is coming to actually remove the power and presence of sin in our lives. The power of sin, the, the effect it has in our lives, the constrainingness it has in our lives, And the presence of sin, the very existence of sin in our lives, Jesus is coming, has come, to actually deal with that problem in our lives. And he's not just talking about sin in some abstract sense, sin in some some type of way that we kind of just, we have to hope that's true in our lives, that Jesus actually does that. Whenever you see the sin in the plural, sins, it's always talking about the particular sins that we struggle with, the burdens that we have on a regular basis. And what this means is those things that burden us, those things that uh, uh, make our lives difficult, that the other, make us unbearable to other people, 
Jesus is actually coming to remove those things from our lives. John ends by telling us that Jesus knew no sin, which is another way of saying that Jesus himself is righteous. And John connects the righteousness that we're called to, to God's righteousness. We're asked to embody a kind of righteousness which is exemplified in Jesus himself. And so if we want to understand what it means to be righteous, we have to actually look to the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is somebody who is uh, described, excuse me, a righteous person is, is somebody who is described as caring for the poor and the needy. And scripture says that Jesus never turned anybody away because of their poverty. A righteous person is someone who promotes the dignity of other image bearers. And Jesus is described as crafting us after his image and allowing us to be beneficiaries of his dignity. A righteous person is characterized by family love for spiritual brothers and sisters. And we're told that Jesus is not ashamed to call us part of his family. That's the confidence that we have this morning as we consider our sin. That someone who is completely unlike our world has entered into it to be our hope and rescue. Would that be our faith this morning? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these good truths that uh, as we consider the gravity of our sin, your grace abounds. We pray that your spirit would give us the faith to behold this and that he would craft us more after your son's likeness. We pray this in his name. Amen.